Ephesians chapter uh, 1, verses 3 to 8. So we're in this sermon series in the book of Ephesians. Now, there's some books in the Bible that are just jam-packed with some really, 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 really good stuff. Now, all books in the Bible are good. They're, they're great for our lives. But there's books that are like jam-packed with some good theology. If you ever want to read a book that really brings this whole idea of what Christ did for us and how that applies to us, read the book of Romans. Dig deep into that, that, that book. The book of Ephesians is written by the Apostle Paul. It's written to the church in Ephesus. Now, this isn't the only time that we hear about the church in Ephesus or that the church in Ephesus holds such a prominent role in the Gospels. Later on in the book of Revelation, in the first several chapters, there are letters written to seven churches. One of the seven churches is the church in Ephesus. Okay, so this is a major metropolitan uh, center. The Apostle Paul writes this book while he is actually in prison. He writes the book when he's in prison. Now, last week we talked about spiritual blessings. And last week what we said is the Apostle Paul must have had a different idea of what it meant to be blessed. Because our idea of what it means to be blessed is we're wealthy. Our health is in perfect order. All of our debts are completely paid. We're living in the best houses. We're driving the best vehicles. But the Apostle Paul says he is blessed even from a prison cell. Poor, a tent maker, would go from town to town preaching the gospel. So there's this difference in between what it means to be materially blessed and what it means to be physically blessed. Uh, what it means to be spiritually blessed. Now, what we spoke about last week, here's what we said. We said last week that the Bible says that the sun rises and the rain falls on both the wicked and the righteous alike. So that means you cannot measure someone's relationship with Christ or their salvation, or their eternal destination by the amount of money they have in their bank account, by what kind of vehicles they drive, by what kind of houses they live in. That is irrelevant. It is irrelevant. That has nothing to do with salvation. And so we drew a comparison last week. What if you live to 120 years old, which is kind of that age that's like, oh my God, I've experienced everything. You don't look a day over 60, right? You can go outside and jog. You're like Jack LaLanne. You're full of energy. Your health is in perfect order. You have no debts. You live in the most perfect house, in the most serene uh, whatever it is, for some of you, it may be, you know, the snow falling in Alaska in a wonderful, beautiful, huge cabin. Maybe that's for you. For some of you, it may be on a tropical island somewhere is what you, you know, dream of uh, doing. By the way, um, for you who are young people, um, let me just give this piece of, of information to you. I've been learning this uh, over the course of the last several weeks. Uh, retirement isn't all it's cracked up to be. Retired people wish that they can go to work sometimes. Sometimes they get bored. 
So the whole objective in life, I know we work our whole life, work our tail off our whole life to just spend our time at home. And there's people who are retired who would love to be doing a bunch of different stuff. So, you know, when we drive our lives by the objective of retirement, right? Who are we giving uh, glory to? So what is it? So we compared that, that idea of what the perfect life would look like for you. And then we said, what if there was someone who had no shoes, wore raggedy clothes, lived paycheck to paycheck, had surmounting debt, was generous as they could, gave their heart to Christ, served, who at the end of the day would be eternally secure? And we came to the conclusion that according to scripture, it is the person that had nothing. Now that's not to say that people that don't have and aren't wealthy cannot be saved and cannot have a great relationship with Christ. It's just to say that sometimes we're like guinea pigs serving on this eternal treadmill attempting to attain a certain number in our life, one that we might not ever achieve. And I just want to let you know from the perspective of the people that I've spoken to who have already chased the carrot and have tried to get to that place, it brings no further happiness than what their life of work did. And so the Apostle Paul then goes on this huge, long, run-on sentence. So if you are a grammar fanatic, you would totally detest what the Apostle Paul writes in the original language here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse uh, 3 to 14. That is the huge, long, run-on sentence. All right? And so here's what he says. The idea is that the church of God, you, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That, that means that before the foundations of the world, God's church was chosen to be his. We have been blessed by being made blameless and holy in the sight of God. I want to share with you two more ways that we've been blessed. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 to 8, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavishes upon us in all wisdom and insight. Now, when I was growing up, there was this image of a very wealthy ancient person, okay? And the image of this very wealthy ancient person, for the most part, it was a woman. Normally, she was lying down. There was these huge like palm leaves. She was laying down. They were waving them at her. Somebody had grapes that they were feeding her. Like that is the image of opulence and luxury. That's the idea that comes to my mind when somebody says lavishes upon me. Now my wife thinks something different when she hears the word lavish. She thinks foot massage. 
I'm not thinking that, all right? But it means to, to take and throw everything, every type of blessing, every type of good thing, literally to pour out upon someone. So here's the two things that I want to focus on today and drive down with. We've been blessed with redemption and forgiveness. That means you, the church of God, is redeemed and forgiven. Paul's whole point in this long sentence is for us to understand just how blessed we are. And when you see these blessings, there should be a stirring in your heart. In light of everything that Jesus has done for you, we should be people who are in awe of of Christ. We should be overwhelmed by his grace for us. Yet if, if we're honest, we don't feel that way. We struggle to feel blessed by God. We struggle to feel a desire to worship him with everything. And in regards to God's grace towards us, maybe we're thankful and we're glad that he died for us on the cross, but there's not a sense of amazement or astonishment for what Jesus has done for us. So why is that? Why is that the case that this mighty thing, this mighty act was done on our behalf and yet we let it pass by as something simple, as just another religion, as just another faith? So I think that the main reason is because we don't realize the depth of our own sinfulness. We haven't truly realized the extent of our rebellion. We don't realize sometimes the deadness that we are in. We didn't realize how dead we were when Jesus called us, when he raised us back up to life. We just don't think we're that sinful. We're not that bad. Sure, I have some flaws and sins like everyone else, but there are plenty of people who are a lot worse than I am. So when you think about it, sometimes people will say, well, relatively speaking, I'm a pretty good person. So when we hear that we've been forgiven and that we've been redeemed, we say, okay, God, thank you. But there's no amazement or astonishment that goes on with it. But Jesus said this. Jesus said, if you've been forgiven much, you will love much. You will only be able to worship to the extent that you realize just how much you have been forgiven. We don't think we've been forgiven all that much. And so our worship is very little. Understanding our sinfulness is is key here. If we don't feel that we're that bad, then our worship will be effective. But here's the deal. You cannot measure your sinfulness by how you feel. Scripture says it. You know what? One of the worst things that we have bought into in the United States of America. Ready? Worst thing. Follow your heart. Follow your heart. When people have followed their heart, it's led them into sin. It's led them into devastation. It's led them into marital affairs. It's led them to be corrupt because they followed their heart. It's led them to be just infused with a love of, of money and a love of possessions and a, and a love of things. Scripture says the heart is deceitful above all things and it's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah seventeen nine says. So our hearts lie to us. So, so we have to measure the depth of our sinfulness then. Because our heart lies to us, we have to measure the depth of our sinfulness by what the Bible says. And Paul tells us in this verse that we're so sinful that we are in need of redemption. The word redemption in the Greek is apple utron, 
which also means ransom. It's the only time that you'd be in a position where you'd have to pay a ransom would be if you were in captivity, bondage, or slavery. Think about that. That is the only time that you would ever have to pay for a ransom. If you were in captivity, bondage, or slavery. Paul is saying that when it came to our sin, we needed redemption, meaning sin held us in captivity, bondage, and slavery. It refused to let us go unless a ransom was paid for us. The Bible often uses slavery, this slavery language, when talking about the depths of our sinfulness. Today, many of us will likely understand the term addiction a little bit more. Slavery is a foreign concept to many of us. But addiction and slavery kind of parallel each other. Because addiction is not just when you have a problem. Addiction is when the problem has you. It's not just drinking here or there or looking at pornography when your wife is out of town. Addiction is when the drinking or the pornography has you. And when it comes to the depth of our sinfulness before Christ, before God saved us, the Bible isn't saying. It's saying sin wasn't just something you had. Sin was something that had you. Sin wasn't something that you did just every now and then and needed help from. It was something that held you in captivity, refusing to let you go. You didn't have control over it. It had control over you. See, if sin was something you had, then we could get rid of it with enough remorse or or bad feeling or blaming others or perhaps by modifying our behavior. However, sin wasn't something that we had. It had us. It refused to let us go without a ransom. Some of you might feel it right now, even though you've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. You may feel the old master still pulling you in, demanding that you bow and obey it. And you realize telling yourself you're not that bad is the way you found how to deal with it. A crushing guilt seems to set in if we stop telling ourselves we're, if we start telling ourselves we're not that bad. So we deal with it in certain ways. You can deal with it in any number of ways, sin. You can deny it altogether, saying that there's no such thing as sin, which people do. Right? In our culture, there is no such thing as sin. We spoke about this several weeks ago. Our culture has become, has changed the definition of intolerant, that it is wrong to tell anybody that they are in sin. It is wrong to say that even a behavior, uh, uh, an attitude is sinful. What do you mean I'm sinful? Yes, you're sinful. Yeah, you're sinful. You can blame somebody else. You can say it's their fault. Have you ever done this before? I've always found this interesting, right? This is so fascinating to me. Human behavior is so fascinating to me. Have you ever been around in a hallway, right? And somebody looks like they're going to trip over you, but they don't even meet you and you go, ouch, anyway? Have you ever, have you ever done that before? Yes. Ouch. You blame somebody else. It's their it's their fault. You can excuse it and say, well, you don't understand my life. You don't understand my circumstances. You can diminish it and you can say, it's not that big of a deal. I know people who've done a lot worse. You can hide it hoping that you, you don't get caught. You can punish yourself. You can feel really bad for it. And as a matter of fact, in the old days of the, the, the church, in the medieval days, people would do something called penance. 
And people still do it today in certain denominations and churches. Now it's looked different throughout the centuries. For some people, penance was taking and lashing and whipping their back. In some places in, I could tell you, in Central America right now, there's people who will walk up their knees to a certain shrine and bloody their knees in order to describe penance for a certain behavior that they have had. Or penance can be, hey, Come with me to the confessional. Here is how we obtain absolution for your sins. Say X amount of Hail Marys, X amount of Our Fathers, and that is your penance. Now, some people want to deal with sin that way. You can try to earn yourself out of it, and you can do a bunch of good things and pay God back for the bad things that you've done. But you see, here's the deal. All of that's exhausting. And many of us have tried all these things. It's exhausting because we're trying to be our own redeemer and we're trying to pay our own ransom. But Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood. In Christ, not in us, there is redemption. See, redemption is impossible in you covering it up or in blaming others or in trying to do better next time. In fact, redemption cannot be found in you at all. Redemption can only be found in Jesus through his blood, in what he has done. Jesus' blood, his life, was the ransom that paid for your redemption. Nothing less than the blood of Jesus can set the captives free. There is an old hymn that says, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And it goes on to say, oh precious is that flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So how do we deal with the depth of our own sinfulness? Well in all kinds of ways that at the end of the day will fail us and exhaust us. When we're making ourselves out to be the redeemer. But there's another way. The Bible tells us that you can be forgiven. Now the second part to that verse that we just read is. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. Forgiveness is another way that we can realize the depth of our sinfulness. Martin Lloyd Jones was a great pastor and theologian. Who once said the problem of forgiveness was the greatest problem that God ever faced. Think about some of the problems that God has had to face throughout human history that's been recorded for us in scripture. When there was darkness, there was no light. God dealt with it simply by saying, let there be light. And there was light. No plants or vegetation. God dealt with it simply by saying, let the earth sprout vegetation. And it was so. No animals on earth. Cool. God dealt with it and said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. And it happened. During the loneliness of man, when Adam was all alone, God dealt with it by putting him to sleep, taking one of his ribs and fashioning a helper, a suitable helper, someone to come alongside him and making woman. With all these problems that God faced, all he did was speak and take a quick little action. Yet when it came to the problem of our sin, he couldn't just say, let there be forgiveness. The problem was too great. The death of sin ran too deep. So God had to do the unthinkable, the unimaginable, and tell his son that the problem was so big that the ransom had to be so great that he had to go to the cross and die that there was no other way. 
the cross of Jesus, the blood of Jesus being the only possible solution shows the depth of the problem. See, the greatness of the solution shows the greatness of the problem. So both our need for redemption and forgiveness serve to show us the depth of our sinfulness. But when you see the lengths to which God has gone, how Jesus had to voluntarily be tormented and killed, all because sin was so great a problem that it couldn't be solved with just a let it be, we might ask why God went through with all of it. It's good for us. It benefited us, but... Why did he do it? It costs him so much. Now pay attention to this. In him we have the redemption of his blood. Ephesians 1, 7. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. God went through it all because of the riches of his grace. Because of the riches of his holiness, God demanded the payment of sin. But because of the riches of God's grace, he himself provided the payment for sin. See, the greatest problem our sin brought to God was answering how the riches of his holiness could coexist with the riches of his grace. And here lies the tension of God's church. Grace and holiness, grace, and truth, mercy, and judgment. So how could God both demand the payment for sin, because he's so holy, yet also provide for the forgiveness of our sins, because he's so gracious? How could he do that? I want to read that text again. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, verse 8, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. He planned a way, determining the most wise and insightful way in which the holiness of God would not consume the sinful people. He planned a way in which he could offer forgiveness, salvation, and redemption to us in the wisest and the most insightful way possible, the way of the cross. When we look at the cross, we need to see more than just a torturous device, more than just the place that our salvation was purchased for us. But when we look at the cross, we need to see the embodiment of God's wisdom and his insight. There was no better way than the cross in which we can receive redemption and forgiveness. It's important to know that forgiveness and redemption are two different things, but they're actually inseparable. In God's wisdom, he saw we both, what we both needed in order to be saved. Paul puts it right together. In him, we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses, all in one singular breath. Yet in the depth of our sinfulness, we desperately want to separate the two. We want the forgiveness, but we don't want the redemption. You have sin in your life that's making you miserable. You're trying all kinds of ways to deal with the guilt, but it's exhausting. You hear God offers forgiveness, so you want it. Forgiveness means the lifting of the guilt, so you won't have to feel bad about it anymore. Redemption means the ransom is being paid for you. It's buying you out of the slavery from sin. But if you're bought, then that means you're no longer belong to yourself. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 states, we have been bought with a price. We are not our own. 
So if I were to say God was offering you forgiveness, no matter what you've done, everybody's heart leaps. That's why everybody loves the teachings of Jesus so much. Yes, forgive me, absolutely. But if I tell you at the cross, God bought you and now he owns you, how would you now feel? See, many of you want forgiveness, but not redemption. You want to be freed from the guilt of your sin, but you don't want to be told what to do. You don't like the idea of being owned, but you want your sins to be forgiven. You want to go to heaven, but you want to stay in control of your life. Here's the deal, church of Christ. Either Jesus is king or he isn't. Either he is king and has the authority to forgive you, but then he also has the authority to tell you what to do, telling you to bow down and demanding everything from you. Or we have another choice. Or he isn't king. He doesn't have the authority. So you go on to live your life however you want it. Here's a word from the Lord. Quit wasting your time here. We can't just pick and choose what he is. He is either king or he isn't. We see this in the Old Testament with the Israelites being in bondage. Enslaved to Egypt. Oftentimes, the Old Testament is a physical picture of our spiritual reality. God was delivering the Israelites out of a physical slavery, showing us the kind of spiritual slavery that he was delivering us out of. And God sent Moses to set them free. So we know all the famous quote of Moses, right? Let my people go. But that's not all he said. God commanded Moses to say, let my people go so that they may serve me and worship me. God wasn't saying, let my people go so that they could go and do whatever they wanted, even though that's what we desperately want. This is, in fact, the modern view of salvation. The modern view of freedom is not to have any Lord at all, choosing whatever you want, being your own boss, and doing whatever pleases you. God doesn't want you to be free But not just so that you can, God wants you to be free, not just so that you no longer have to obey the slave masters of sin, but so that you can obey and worship him. Now, some people think that that's not really good news at all. You're trading in one master for another. But sin no longer being your master and God now being your master, in fact, makes all the difference in the world. He is a good master. If God rescued Israel out of Egypt and then turned them over to themselves, he wouldn't have really rescued them at all. He would have just replaced one terrible master for another. You doing what you want, only obeying yourself for the rest of your life would only end in a horrific life. Do you want to live in a world where you are the king? Here's the truth. It would be quite a terrible world. If we're true, sometimes people do things that get us angry. And in the moment, if you were the king, sometimes you wish that they were gone or that some harm would befall them. What kind of benevolent king would you be if you truly had your way? If all of your greatest inhibitions were allowed to be brought to light and you were allowed to conduct them freely, that's not the kind of salvation that God has in mind. 
forgiveness without redemption is no salvation at all. We can't have the freedom of forgiveness without giving the worship that redemption demands. It's not just let my people go. It's let my people go so that they may worship me. So why is the Bible so bent on showing us the depth of our sinfulness? Why does it talk about sin so much? Why do we have to preach about sin so much? Now, do you remember the first day that you met Jesus? There was some sense of your sinfulness and your need for him and the cross. And you had sense enough that you cried out to him, asking him to save you. Our wishful thinking at the time was that we would grow in Christ, learning to love him in such a way that we would sin less and less and less, and so we would feel better about our sinfulness. But that's not what the gospel commands us. The cross isn't demanding that we glance at it only on the day of our salvation. The cross is demanding that we survey it, (laughs) that we ponder it, (laughs) that we meditate on it. That we, we serve every square inch of it and then see the very depth of our sinfulness by seeing the solution that was needed to deliver and forgive us from our sins. It is why when you go to inner healing to be healed, the cross is central to that because you just need to understand just how much you have been freed, just how much you have been forgiven. Maybe you have not been walking in that freedom, but you have been freed. See, many of us want to skip the crucifixion and go straight to the resurrection. But first, we have to be condemned by the cross before we can be saved by it. There is no resurrection apart from the crucifixion. If you look at the cross long enough, you'll see a paradox set in your life. As you walk with Jesus for a period of time, you'll begin to see him change you. You will sin less, but you'll feel more like a sinner than ever before because you see how perfect Jesus actually is. In light of Jesus, you will realize you're a greater sinner than you ever thought you were. But you'll also see that Jesus is a greater savior than you ever dreamed he could be. See, we didn't know the depth of our sinfulness, but he knew and he still went to the cross for us. You'll never see him to be a great savior if you don't see yourself to be a great sinner. Let's make our goal an application to look at the cross or walk with Jesus in such a way that 10 years from now we'll have a greater sense of our own sinfulness than we do today. That on our dying day we'll have the greatest sense of our sinfulness, but that we'll also have the greatest sense of Jesus and of God's glorious grace for our life. Amen.